The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. There are times when our lives don't work out the way we expect. Jay, there are sometimes times when life throws us a good curveball, right? Uh, absolutely. And uh, today's show is exactly on one of those situations. And to be uh, perfectly uh, open with our audience, uh, our guest is a man who I think I've known for 69 years. We uh, graduated Princeton together in 1957. We just had our 65th reunion. We followed very different paths. In fact, you couldn't be much more different in that I am always remarking to people that I am still doing 65 years later what I learned first at Princeton and then in graduate school, which is uh, science and engineering. That's all I've ever done. Our guest, Turhan Tirana, uh, has followed a very different path, specifically of in recent years. He started his uh, career in journalism, but moved fairly rapidly to international banking. And 15 years ago, he retired at the age of uh, 71, and his intent was to focus on his hobby of fly fishing and, and his uh, family. And a few years went by, and I know I kept touch with him. I, I know he was happy, but one day we'll find out more about, he developed a, a calling to go back to school get a degree in religion, and then uh, find work where his knowledge of religion could help others. And so uh, he went to the general uh, seminary and got a degree and then went out looking for how to use that degree. And he ended up at a mission, the Pivot Mission in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where they were looking for a, a Bible teacher to teach recovering addicts. And they had people that would enroll in a program, commit to staying in the mission, living there for a year, while they took a, a variety of courses and hopefully could beat their addiction. So Turhan Tirana applied for that job. And I believe he's now had about 600 students in the years since he's been doing it. He's a fascinating individual, and I know that our listeners are going to enjoy an insight to life that they likely know little about. Welcome to her, and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Jay. 
All right. My first question is, when did you decide there might be a new chapter awaiting you in life? I was 71 when the thought came to me that I might study at a seminary. And what was your goal that you hoped you'd gain from seminary studies? I just wanted to study. I'm kind of a natural scholar, and study was all that I had in mind. Now that I know more about the subject, I would give it a theological term, which is the Holy Spirit. But I didn't know that at the time. Where did you find a seminary to apply to? This was in Manhattan, New York City, and it's called the General Theological Seminary. It's been around since 1831. It's the first Episcopal seminary in the United States. I'd taken a course about 10 years earlier from one of the professors, and that's how I knew about it. You mentioned that you're kind of a natural-born scholar, but why religion, and what were your religious beliefs at the time you decided on going to a seminary? My religious beliefs were about nothing. I was an, an agnostic, really. Why I decided to go to seminary, I do not know. That's a mystery, but it just came to me. I can put it as I did in theological terms, but it was a calling, as you said. Was the General Theological Seminary surprised to receive an application for admission from a man, I, you must have been about 75 at the time. I think I was 72, but yes, I was certainly the oldest person in my class. Mm -hmm. What's the religious denomination of the seminary? It's Episcopalian, and its purpose is essentially to prepare students to take holy orders and become Episcopal priests. They have a couple of small programs for people like me who weren't interested in ordination. What did you plan to do with the degree when you completed it? The, the church does not take on people of my age, but I wasn't planning for ordination. I was in a, another kind of a program just to study. Specifically, it was uh, I got a master's degree in what they called then biblical studies. Most of the students get Master of Divinity degrees or MDivs. You did it primarily from the standpoint of learning something about a subject that you wanted to know more about. That sounds like the motivation just to learn. That's correct. So when then upon your graduation, uh, did you decide to seek work in a field of religion where your degree would be useful to you? And how did you find the Pivot mission in Bridgeport, Connecticut? My church gives money to Pivot annually. And in turn, Pivot comes one Sunday a year and they bring in their choir, double the size of the church in the process, sing and uh, give what's known as testimony, namely how Jesus Christ helped them with their addictions. Then the executive director said, we need help. Help included Bible study. I was then finishing my program at General, and I thought, that's me. 
Is there anything special about the location of Pivot in Connecticut? Yes. Bridgeport is a high crime city now. It's a failed city. It used to be the opposite. It was a major manufacturing center in the early 1900s. World War II brought it up to a prominent place in American industry. It got lots of parks and and, uh, lots of churches. Yeah. Well, what happened to it that caused it to go downhill? I think what happens to a lot of large American city, manufacturing disappears and they devolve into some lesser and lesser purpose. In this case, Bridgeport is, as far as I see, it's largely people living on welfare. Mm -hmm. So in other words, a huge unemployment rate contributed to the downfall of the city. These people really weren't interested in employment. They were street people. They were out on their own. What was the reaction of the head of the Pivot Mission when you applied for a job? So I gather he knew you a little bit from your interaction with the choir and donating money. But what was your interview like? In other words, what did he think the mission could do with you? What were their needs? Their needs were teachers of Bible. The cure at this place, they believe, for addiction is prayer and Bible study and some other things, programs such as anger management and uh, alcoholics or narcotics anonymous. He said he was mystified, uh, he being the executive director, and he sent me to the chairman of the board, and we had an unusual interview which I almost failed but passed. I want to challenge you to describe what it was like for you to walk into a classroom with some number of recovering addicts, or hopefully recovering, who had committed themselves to spend a year at the mission. How did you see them uh, perceiving their addiction? How were you able to talk to them about why you were there and what you might do for them and what was their reaction to you, let's say the first day or the first week or the first month? The first day I walked into the door and much to my surprise, I was totally calm. Now these people, most all of them have served prison time. They're tough, they're addicted. I was calm. I had a plan, which was to study the Psalms. We would do a Psalm class. So it was easy. We read this a Psalm. It was the first Psalm out of 150. And then we talked about it. I'm not as familiar with Psalms, and maybe there are people in our audience that are not. How do you define a biblical Psalm? Psalm is the Hebrew word for song. These are also poetry, and they are there in poetic form, and they convey some sort of idea of either hope or agony. The psalmist is calling to God or praising God or thanking God, but especially calling for help. Now, the psalms are not written by the same 
people who wrote the Bible, uh, they're added later on. And in terms of history, Psalms are still being added or not? There are 150 Psalms in what's called the canon, which means the authorized version of the Bible. There will never be any more. There are other Psalms that didn't make it into the Bible, and people can and sometimes do make up their own Psalms, but there are only 150, and that's been the case since the Middle Ages. When were the Psalms written? They were written over hundreds of years. Perhaps the center point was 900 BC, before Christ, 900 years before Christ. They still apply today, I take it. Yes, they're a part of the Jewish liturgical process, and they're read in Christian churches. Usually, before the service begins in a Christian church, a psalm is is read. They're read by people for help privately, uh, Mm -hmm. or for consolation, or for thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. So did you find it had a calming effect on the men? I think that the talking process had a calming effect, just talking about actually anything. And mm-hmm. we're talking now in a biblical context and always do. Sometimes we go afield a bit, but I try to keep it focused on the Bible so that there's, there's structure. What kind of drugs are they coming off? Are are these very difficult drugs to get off? They they come off of all sorts of drugs. And I'm not an addict. I tried marijuana in my 20s, and (laughs) I didn't didn't like it. Uh, So so I don't know. And I, I just know the names of them. Crack cocaine seems to be popular with them and is particularly addictive. Now, getting off crack cocaine, that would be very, very difficult, I assume. It is. So you'd feel pretty horrible. Did they have to make a pledge while in the mission to take no drugs at all? They not only may make a pledge, but they're, they're supervised. They're watched 24-7. They live there. And somebody's always listening to them, even at night, if they're talking to make sure that there's nothing, nothing that will upset them. How do you feel your students perceived their addiction? Did you just talk about the Bible and not talk about how they became addicts or how they feel about being addicted? That's correct. I did not and do not bring up addiction. Uh, I let them talk about it. And occasionally it just comes up. Uh, If they blurted out or they refer to their addiction in the context of whatever piece of scripture we're reading. And they seem to be people of all races. Yes, it changes all the time. There's a turnover. They're mostly black, though at one time I had mostly white men in their 20s. These men vary in age from 18 up to 70. Mm-hmm. Is there a requirement that they be of a certain religious denomination, or can anybody come in? Anybody can come in, though there are there are other other rehab processes which are not religious based, and those are the majority. To come into this place, they have to know that the uh, it's religious based. Mm-hmm. So th- they come in 
most always being Christian, mostly Protestant. Describe a day in the life of an addict living at the mission. They, they have three meals there. The, the day is broken up into study and work. The work is outside the, the mission are things such as lawn maintenance or construction, all done under the auspices of the, of the mission. The mission gets paid and the mission pays something to the, they call them students doing the work. The other type of work is in the mission and that's cleaning up, cooking, supervising and keeping the place going. The mission is uh, divided half students and half uh, instructors. The instructors are all former students. Mm-hmm. Oh, is that right? So what fraction of them that actually stay for the whole year are successful in kicking their drug habit? Those are actually two questions. The fraction that stay in the program is uh, maybe half, and the fraction that kick their addictions is very small. It's it's not measurable. I asked AA, they don't keep any statistics because it's really impossible. And it's impossible because people, uh, they, they, they fall off and they can fall off at any time and they can fall off many times. Mm-hmm. You know, years ago, I took lorazepam to help sleep. And essentially, I became addicted to that drug. That's Ativan, actually, which is a tranquilizer. And to get off it, a counselor told me I should exercise so hard that I sweat, really sweat. <laughs> uh-huh. And, you know, and, you know, it worked. It worked. I got off it completely. So I would think exercise would help these men, too. Or what do you find? They have a nominal exercise program but it doesn't amount to much. Most of it is religion-based. As I said, the principal idea is that prayer and Bible study somehow will get you out of your addiction. These people's addiction is deep. It affects one's nerves. Uh, Your addiction certainly affected your, your nerves, but probably not as much as it does these people. It's biological. Now, you mentioned... Or I think I read some a story about you in which it mentioned that everybody who worked at the mission had been an addict. So there must be people at the mission who did succeed in uh, kicking their addiction and therefore would be models for the students trying. Yes, that's the theory. The staff there, they are to be models, but in fact, even they occasionally fall off the wagon and go back to drugs. When that happens and is found out, then they're sent away for a month or forever. Sometimes they're allowed to return. And this can happen more than once. Addiction is terrible. With such low success rate that you've described, how did you or still do you deal with the frustration? It kind of reminds me of the proverb of somebody who rolled a stone up a hill only to have it roll back down and start again. I can't remember the names in that 
prominent Sisyphus. story, but Sisyphus, yeah. Sisyphus. Uh, so how did you deal with that level of frustration as hard as you worked at it? I deal with Bible study. I'm not a psychotherapist or a therapist of any kind. Uh, so that's not my job or my training or my expertise. But I do have to face it. And sometimes these men, uh, they can't hold themselves back and they blurt out their difficulties. I bring them back to scripture and we just continue talking, always in the context of the scripture. We talk and the Bible is full of references to addiction. Though in the early days, it was called something else. It was called possession. The men were possessed or people were possessed sometimes. So it's how, there in the Bible. How often did you meet with them? How far did you have to travel uh, to the mission, you know, logistically? And how long have you been involved with the mission? I've been involved for 10 years. Bridgeport is not far. It's, it's a 45 minutes drive. And I teach once a week for 90 minutes. Yeah, what's your favorite psalm? Probably the 23rd, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's the traditional favorite of mm -hmm. most people. Mm -hmm. And if people listening to this program have addictions, what is that what you would recommend to them? Or are there a number of others that would be good? I recommend the listener going through the psalm book. There are 150 psalms. Each one is different and finding out just what he or she is drawn to. Mm -hmm. and would they say it out loud or just to themselves or what, what should, or sing it? What should they do? Whatever's their inclination or preference. I, mean, I am an, an introvert. I, I would read it to myself. They are intended to be sung. In Episcopal churches, they're sung epiphanally, and it's beautiful. The choir is divided in two, and one side sings a verse, another side sings the, another verse back to the first side. It goes back and forth. They're things of beauty. They were intended to be sung. It was so long ago that these were uh, written that we don't know what the singing was like. Mm -hmm. well, how do people know what melody to use? They don't. So they're made up by musicians, and they're, they vary. Once, to make that point, I had, the, had one of the men read a psalm in rap. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that must have been fun. And I said, just read it like rap. And he was puzzled at first, and then he got the hang of it and uh, did it, and then got everybody else to join in it. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. So, so psalms, can, psalms can be sung to rap, too. <laughs> Jay and I have become a bit of a fan of a rapper by the name of Tom McDonald, who gives uh -huh. really messages through his rap, but I'd never uh -huh. thought of rapping to psalms. I mean, <laughs> why not? <laughs> yes. If you, if you meet Tom McDonald, I'd suggest it to him. Oh, okay. That's a good idea. Yeah. 
because he actually stands up for Christians and others who are being attacked by mainstream media. So actually, that would be kind of a unique thing for him to try. Yes, he might have to be brave to do it, but he could. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I understand you asked uh, your class to write some psalms. And I read somewhere that while you asked them to see if they could write a psalm, you, it was something that you were not comfortable with doing yourself. Am I correct? That's correct. Uh, I don't know why, uh, but uh, uh, I, there's some kind of barrier that I couldn't break through to be that creative. But they didn't have that trouble. They, they took a psalm, they took the, they understood the rhythm of the psalm and how it should sound and were able to construct words to match that. Mm -hmm. We have to go for a commercial break, so we'll be right back with the story of Turan, his saving of lost souls through Bible studies. Really interesting. We'll be right back. Is a record player the best way to listen to music? Of course not. So why are you still taking vitamins that haven't been upgraded since the 1930s? Even if your vitamins aren't hard to swallow, it's time to upgrade to Healthy Cells pill-free, patent-pending microgel supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. They taste great, convenient on the go, and they're more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -E -L -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. We are America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. 
Click the banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a made-in-America climate plan, a plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure, a plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com. So we're back with Duran talking about saving lost souls through Bible reading, through the Psalms, various other things. So tell us, Duran, what is it really like having these kinds of addictions for these men? From what they've occasionally mentioned to me it's horrible their lives are consumed by it and one unusual term that sticks with me is loneliness it's lonely here's how what one student he's 60 years old he was a member of the he says the gambino mob is anxious to rid himself of his addiction He's been addicted since he was 30. So he described buying $3,000 worth of crack cocaine, renting a hotel room, going into the hotel room, locking the door, going into the bathroom, locking the door of the bathroom, getting into the tub, pulling the shower curtain across him, putting the crack on the toilet seat and getting ready to smoke it over the course of three days. Wow, and not probably eating either, eh? Correct. He survived? Yes, he survived. He's, he's, he's in my class right now. I'll be teaching him on Thursday. Another one mentioned buying a six-pack of Coke and going and doing the same thing, basically, holding up alone with a six-pack of Coke and taking his drug, whatever it was. I don't actually know what the effects of taking the drug are. Like, I mean, is the attraction that you forget your problems? Is it that you feel euphoric or or what is it exactly? It varies by drug. The men have their preferences. They're bought for two reasons. The, the initial one is that they're stressed or they may like the effect of it. It becomes the pleasure of it vanishes and it just becomes something that they physically need to do mm-hmm. and their minds are stuck on getting more drugs mm-hmm. and i guess the as the pleasure goes away it just simply becomes a curse right it's a curse that's a good word they would say the same thing and they hate their addictions they want mm-hmm. to get rid of them Mm-hmm. And so after a while, they just take it so that they don't feel terrible. Is that it? Yes, that part of it. And then if they come under some stress, and the stress can be, be virtually anything, they'll go back to it. 
And that happens with the staff of Pivot 2, as I mentioned. Some of this, I've had people come back to this program twice, many times. They've fallen off the wagon. They've Mm -hmm. come back to Pivot and said, I've fallen off. Will you take me? Pivot says, yes, of course. Then uh, they go through the program a second time. And I've had one or two over the years come back a third time. So one's probably never really cured of an addiction. It's always there. It can be kept under control with Mm -hmm. difficulty. Yeah, so it's a bit like alcoholism in that sense. Well, yes, alcohol is an addiction, can be an addiction. It's interesting on the web, you say that they are blessed to be there. And so are you. So obviously you feel that you found your calling and that you enjoy doing it and it's worthwhile. And it sounds like an incredible second career. It is. I feel wonderful doing it. I feel wonderful engaging with the men. This is give and take. I've got to be alert every second of the time. If I make a mistake in, say, scripture or hesitate too long in an answer, then I lose my creds and Mm -hmm. everything's gone. There's that tension. Also, these guys are smart and uh, they can pick up anything. They're sensitive. Many of them, they're street people. They're wary, uh, skeptical, and it's an enormous challenge for me to keep them engaged in a way that they want to be engaged and can relate to. And this is the, in my case, this is the Bible. Mm -hmm. I find that interesting how you say they're really sharp-witted, how they're smart. I mean, a lot of people are very prejudiced against anybody who's had drug troubles or been in prison, and they don't give them an opportunity. But you're saying these people are actually very bright individuals. Yes, most of them are. Now, these people are special also in that they've recognized their problem, they've faced up to it, and they've come to pivot voluntarily and asked Pivot to accept them into this program. They don't have to be there. They want to be there and they want to be there. It's not pleasant. They want to be there to get rid of their addictions. What kind of leeway do you have in your teaching? Is it dictated by the the head of the mission or does they tell you whatever you think will work, go for it. Nobody tells me anything, oddly. At first, when I started 10 years ago, I asked, and I, I thought I would make it easy for the executive director. And I said, would you like me to teach psalms or parables? And he said, psalms. And to be political, I said, well, which ones to start? And he said, the first 10. So that's how I started. Then I did the Psalms for quite a while. And he he told me, don't you ask them anything. You tell them. So I would choose a Psalm. I got bored. Then I said, well, what Psalm would you like to study the next class? And Seventh Hand shot up. And they said, 1923, 1791. That shows the extent of their expertise. Mm-hmm. So I asked them what they wanted to study. Then that devolved 
over to, to spread it out to anything else in the Bible, either the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Bible. I let them choose. And if they don't want to choose, then I choose for them. Mm-hmm. It strikes me that it, Psalms would be very useful for everybody, not just people who are recovering from addiction. So if you, for example, were in a stressful part of your life, would the Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, is that number 23? Yes. Yeah. Now that one strikes me as one that would be good to read before bed, for example, if you're having trouble. Yes. There are other Psalms that help with other kinds of trouble, such as God's silence, Psalms that plead for God to hear one. Those are compelling as well. Mm -hmm. Are there listings somewhere which give different types of problems that are helped by different Psalms? Not that I know of, but it's not difficult going through the the Psalter, it's called. It's in, usually in the, it's in the middle of the Bible. It's part of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, Christians call it. They're together, 1 to 150, and you just thumb through until something catches your eye, and then look at that. If it seems to talk to you, then you read the rest of it, then you go to something else. Yeah, I'm just curious, did Jesus read the Psalms to people? Yes, Jesus knew the Psalms by heart. Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher, and Mm -hmm. any rabbi would know all the Psalms, all of them by heart. And in the early days of Christendom, that was a requirement too. Now, the rabbis would also know the rest of the Old Testament by heart, pretty much. Very few people were literate. The rabbis were. But most of biblical teaching was spread by word of mouth and had to be remembered. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. A friend of mine, I don't know what religion he is, or even if he is religious, or even if he believes in God. I was complimenting him once on one of his papers, a scientific paper, and I said, this is the most amazing thing I've ever read. And he said, ah, oh, well, then you should read the Bible more. <laughs> so it, 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 strikes me, it strikes me that these Psalms are useful for everybody, whether you're religious, whether you believe in God, they would be very calming and very encouraging, wouldn't you say? Yes, there are. they're just one part of the Bible. Uh, there are other parts. Uh, there are stories, there's doctrine or teaching, Uh, there's a lot of, there's history in the Old Testament, chronology, bits and pieces, some are more interesting, I believe, than others, and they are, I believe, not equal. When you enroll at the, the mission, the first thing they do is hand you a Bible? You, generally, these people have their own Bibles. They come in with their own Bible. And in my class, each of them has, his, each of their Bibles is different. So sometimes they say they're reading from such and such a Bible. And sometimes we'll read a passage and I say, well, somebody else in the class, tell us your interpret your translation of that passage because the translations they're all translations from the hebrew or the greek and uh, uh, by different translators so the passages come out differently and we compare 
the translation sometimes. Do mm -hmm. you have one version of the Bible that you recommend most to people if they're just starting to Bible read? I, I wouldn't presume to do that. Uh, uh, there are scholars who seem to prefer one kind of Bible to the others. But I think it's best not to not to uh, prescribe that and to let the person choose his own Bible. Mm -hmm. Usually, I think the person will ask others what the others like. Mm -hmm. Which is your favorite version? My favorite verse is, uh, as opposed to Bible, is. Uh, Micah, uh, I think it's uh, 10.9. Mm -hmm. But my favorite Bible uh, is called the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. Oh, okay. <laughs> the first English Bible in English uh, was the King James written in about the year 1600. Have you ever had uh, a student who went through the program try to contact you uh, when they were on the outside or is your contact information uh, uh, kept from them? No, I've never had anyone contact me. There were, I see them at graduate, some of them who come back to what's to graduations once a year, they graduate the students who've been in the program the requisite number of months, and everybody's been to pivot is invited back to that. And I see all students there. Uh, uh, that's my contact. Do you share anything of your private life? I do occasionally, but not much. I, I try to keep, keep myself out of it uh, because this is about them, it's not about me. Well, but it would seem to me that your credibility in some areas would be enhanced if they knew you know, stories of your background. Perhaps you and perhaps not. It, it would be taking a risk because what I said about my background might turn off somebody. Uh, okay. And, uh, but uh, I think my credibility comes from the way I teach, from the questions I ask them, and when they ask me my responses. And I guess you're going to just keep doing this as long as you can. You're you're 88 now, is that right? I will be next in a year, yes. Yeah, well, this is a great inspiration for people who are retired and perhaps bored, and they actually could have a second career and do a very valuable one. I mean, you've had now, 600 students, if I understand right. Well, it's, it's, it's more by now. When I wrote the number 600, that was uh, 10 years ago. Oh, wow. So what's your average class size? It's about 20. And sometimes it's as low as six. And sometimes as large as 
25. There's a lot of coming and going. The men uh, drop out, and then other men come in and take their place. A few men stay the duration, uh, but less than half. My understanding, Turin, you have an, I, what I see is an unusual uh, hobby, and I wonder if you ever talk to it. You are a fly fisherman, uh, and I'm wondering, do you ever get to talk about that? Uh, the story of how did you become a fly fisherman, you know, might be an interesting story for the class. Probably not. Uh, these guys are, are not into that sort of thing. Uh, there, I don't think. Uh, I, used, I used to go fly fishing after class. Uh, I would, driving from Bridgeport back home, I'd drive by a lovely little trout stream, and I would stop there and fish. And occasionally I would say, well, I'm going to go fishing. See you next week. That, that sounds absolutely wonderful. Uh, I once heard a story, a little bit off, but I think our listeners would be interested in knowing more about you, how you actually became a fly fisherman. Was it something natural? Or I recall your wife telling me that you wrote a book about it. I became a fly fisherman after age 14 going to a Boy Scout camp in Virginia in the the, the Blue Ridge Park. Uh, it had a lovely little trout stream. It was the headwaters of something called the Rapidan River. I was a counselor and I looked into the water occasionally I see these beautiful little brook trout. And then, then that induced me to take up fly fishing. Before that, I'd fished with, with a spinning rod, a different process for bass and perch. It doesn't require nearly as much skill as fly fishing for trout. Now, am I right that you did write a book about it? Yes. So you, uh, Tom, posed the, the statement, actually, that he thought, you didn't see an end in sight of your teaching uh, recovering drug addicts at the uh, Piffet mission. Is, is that correct, that it continues to reward you enough to, uh, to stay with it? Uh, yes. I, it could be discontinued if I had some physical ailment, such as losing my voice. Or, okay. or my mobility, or I could be fired, uh, and I could be fired, uh, I think, for theological reasons. My theology is not the same as the, that of the, the staff and the people who run the program. Mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting, Pivot Ministries, uh, how are they funded, and do they need help? Can people make donations? Pivot Study, Pivot Ministries is funded by contributions from churches in the area, uh, usually Protestant churches, uh, and also by small family foundations. Uh, 
wealthy people from these churches. Its budget is $750,000 a year, which sounds like a lot. It is a lot, but that is for room and board and vehicles and, and paying the staff a little bit. Uh, so it's a business undertaking as well. Mm -hmm. And can the average listener, for example, contribute? I mean, it sounds like a great mission statement to return them into their families and communities without their addictions, of course. So can an average person donate? Of course. So what a listener would do is to go online and look up Pivot Ministries, dot org and then there'll be uh, instructions on how to give money mm -hmm. well, that's great I'll, I'll include a link then to pivot ministries under the program when it goes on podcast on monday thank you do you uh, interact with the staff there or do you get an opportunity it would seem to me with your background that you would have something uh, to offer, you know, holding a seminar for the staff itself. Does that ever uh, happen? The, the, the staff and I know each other. The staff has been through the program. So the staff have all been students of mine. It's, it's fun. Uh, they, they know what I do. Uh, their methods and positions are different from mine. I'm a teacher of the Bible. Really, I'm a discussion leader. Uh, and uh, my interaction with the staff, it's mostly as a friend-to-friend -friend basis now. I interact with the students sometimes uh, after class when we have lunch together. And uh, I usually ask them about their own backgrounds. Well, you are, it, it just astounds me. I've obviously known you for a very long time. And I recall, you know, following this path of yours uh, to take up a new calling. And I think it has a great value to our listeners. I, as Tom knows, and uh, many others know, when I came out of college, I had uh, two goals. Uh, one was to uh, stay as healthy as I could be, and two, to work my whole life if I was uh, physically able and find things that I was passionate about. And I have been uh, incredibly uh, fortunate in both those areas. But what you did, in, is just so fascinating to, I mean, most people know that ministers and so on, uh, it's a calling and they start out early and join the ministry. And your ministry is very, very unique and it occurred uh, very late in life. And it's certainly every bit as, uh, as valuable as someone who began at the beginning to be an ordained uh, minister. So I, I know that your story is really inspirational to many of our listeners, many of whom are at an advanced age that uh, can find 
extremely useful uh, if, and exciting, you know, things uh, to do. We find there are just too many people reach an age and decide, you know, it's over and they're just going to sit around and uh, do things that occupy their time but are not uh, rewarding in the whole concept of of looking around. And you didn't look around. It just, it happened to you. But I think it could happen to uh, many other people as well. Yes. What was uh, ironic in my case is that I never was really satisfied with any of the several careers I had until after I retired and this came along. Uh, the irony is that in my, after I graduated when you did, uh, Jay, uh, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I stumbled from one career to another career to another career. But what I'm doing now, teaching, never occurred to me. And I was not interested in religion either. Princeton has a fine religion department. I didn't take any religion courses. I wasn't prepared until late in life, like about age 70, to embark on this. And as you said, Jay, it just happened. Well, our listeners would enjoy when you said you didn't know what you wanted to do. I, You remember as I remember uh, we both graduated on a day that was 100 degrees uh, at, on the campus, and everybody is in their robes, uh, long black robes, and essentially everybody had nothing but underwear under the robes because <laughs> of the 100 degrees. But we would be chatting, and the most common subject is, okay, what now? Where are we going next week? And I found, and I did a bit of a survey, that if you were not going to go to law school or, or medical school, uh, half the people did not know what they were going to do. And I was rather surprised at that because uh, I was an engineer, uh, had very few liberal arts courses. I mean, I was kind of on a path uh, as an engineer that was fairly... Uh, straight. But if you didn't have that, the majority absolutely didn't know what they were going to do. I, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. And uh, in, in your case, uh, it, it led you in many different directions. But I think it's incredibly exciting uh, to have found something as rewarding as you have these past 10 years. Yes, I agree with you. I was fortunate. And uh, one cannot, uh, this, com this comes or it doesn't come. I don't think you can look for it and find it. There's something magical that occurs to, so it finds you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you were saying my calling, Old Testament style, had come and smacked me on the head. <laughs> but a That's better right. calling... You said a better calling, a better use of what General had taught me, and a more challenging one, one that requires me to be fully alert each moment, 
I cannot conceive. So I mean, that's a, a really wonderful message to, to have happen to you, actually. Well, yes, I want to tell I want to tell our listeners something they don't know about Tom. If you're a regular listener to the other side of the story, and I hope you are, uh, Tom at a pretty advanced age learned to play the guitar and sing, and will frequently go to a retirement home and uh, and entertain. And I've seen some of his videotapes, and they're absolutely uh, terrific. And I would imagine you didn't do any of that until you were well past 50. <laughs> well, I never tried to sing. In fact, it's funny, I have played guitar for a long time, but in the band, we did a bit of a test in a studio to see who would sing, and it was 100% unanimous that it wouldn't be me. So <laughs> that just discouraged me for half a century until, until I actually took some lessons and realized, well, actually, I can do it, you know, <laughs> in my 60s. But so, um, Terhan, what would you give as a final message to people who are retired and bored and, you know, dis despondent? I mean, what should they do? Is, is there things they can do to help pick themselves up and get a second career? My message would be to be open, to, to be aware of what's going on in your head or your desires what uh, appeals and just let let it happen if it's going to happen mm -hmm. that's not very prescriptive but uh, being open is open to change yeah and and uh, that would be my suggestion yeah, and get out, not just stay at home, but get out and see people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that was wonderful. That's the story of Turan with his second career, saving lost souls through biblical studies and working with Pivot Ministries out of Bridgeport, Connecticut. So thanks for being on our show, Turan. Thank you, Tom and Jay. Yeah, that's great. So this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.